On December 11, 1970, Apple releases John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. It takes the critics by surprise after his other solo efforts. It has no title on the cover, just a pastoral picture of John and Yoko sitting under a tree. On the same day, Apple releases Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band with the same cover. John's album opens with funeral chimes, then moves into a lament about his late mother, Julia. During this period, John had been going through Arthur Janov's primal scream therapy, and it shows in the way he wrote and sang this song. Welcome this week's Wednesday was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. So this week we are beginning our deep dive into the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band Ultimate Collection. And by coincidence, no, not really. Today, as you're listening to it, is Mother's Day. That would be a great place to start. All right, so let's dig in. The first off, the box looks very nice. It's everything you would want. <laughs> the the box itself is the same size as the Imagine and the Greatest Hits collection from last year. So people who complain about such things have no reason to complain. You know, we have a duty to to keep his music and art out there only because I think it's important work. And I think, you know, the first time around, his songs really helped people, arguably, at least culture. I think they were a significant contribution to culture. And so I don't think we can afford to lose. Very good. I, I agree. It's just, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful package. And then the photo on the front, even if you look at the thumbnail on iTunes, it's amazing how much going back to the original negative helps that. Yeah, well, you know, we've lived about 50 years since then. Technology has really, really changed. And then what comes in the package you get a book, which is a, a slimmed-down version of the uh, commercial book, which they also released separately. All sorts of amazing details, uh, pictures of the recording tapes. You turn to any random page, and here is the recording sheet for uh, Working Class Hero Mother, I Found Out, Jam, Well, 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 Dream Is Over, from September the 27th of 1970. Here's all the details. And then you get two slip covers. The first contains six CDs. And then the second slip cover contains two Blu-ray discs 
which consists of all of the collection plus Yoko's plastic auto band. Pretty, pretty great. I have to say, in all honesty, I have not seen the package. I've heard the music, but I haven't seen the package. Well, you can, you can see what it looks like online. Right. It is an expensive package, but for what you get, they give you value for your money. Well, you know, as I said, it's uh, been 50 years, and the, the people who are willing to, to purchase this have no problem with, <laughs> with buying. What is kind of a shame is that this, this and boxes like this are really what's propping up the music industry, certainly the physical media music industry these days. Right, because there's, you know, the different philosophies. Uh, my kids don't buy music the way I did, and you know, never will. They, they, at this point, for the most part, go for individual songs, and so they do scour the internet for new things. But I haven't seen them collecting anybody, whereas I had tons of albums. By the time either of us were. 15 years old, that was what we spent our pocket money on. Yes, indeed. Of course, with Beatles stuff and solo stuff, the posters and whatever else we could we could scrounge uh, off of our local record dealers. Poster was kind of sliding out. We got a couple of posters and, or a poster and a couple of postcards. Here's the first postcard. Who are the Plastic Ono Band? And the response, of course, is... You are the Plastic Ono Band. Also, we get this lovely poster as well. War is over, if you want it. Peace. Peace. Right. And then bootlegs and books. And, and really, I think a lot of that bootleg industry helps fire this idea of the anthologies and greatest hits packages. And because not only is it greatest hits, particularly with this set, there's lots of stuff new versions, different versions that you've never heard, possibly. And so um, it's kind of like an authorized bootleg. Well, and, you know, we do have Dylan to thank for that. Dylan is the one who really sort of said, why am I letting the bootleggers make all this money? I can duplicate their work and put it out as a legal release. Right. And, of course, now you're dealing with the copyright issue where, Artists have to publish certain things, particularly when they're older. If they don't publish them, then they fall into public domain. And so we're getting more things being published so that the rights remain with the artist. It will be interesting to see what happens as things legitimately fall into the public domain. Although I don't think either of us will live quite long enough <laughs> to see that, but, but it's, it's already happened, you know, in, in England, uh, a lot of the 62 stuff is, is in the public domain. And in Canada, the renewal didn't happen until 65. So theoretically, hmm. anyone could release any of the pre 65 Beatles material. I bet not. <laughs> There have been lawsuits over it, but legally, there's actually only one company that's really tried, and that's uh, a, a label associated with Walmart, of all things. <laughs> so in Canada, you can walk into a Walmart and find these weird 
you know, Beach Boys collections and, and early Beatles collections. And it's like, what's this? Oh, this is because the material is in the public domain in Canada through 65. Hmm. The law didn't change until 50 years after 65, 2015. And so now there's an international agreement. So, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I know that McCartney is beginning to recollect some of the old songs because the copyright has ended. I think he got back Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. Uh, well, <laughs> that's because they were not part of Dick James. Right. Uh, he, he bought the uh, Beachwood Music, the EMI publishing, who had those two songs. And, of course, that led us to the... Uh, Rather unfortunate medley, P.S. Love Me Do. You remember that? Uh, uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, 80, 89, 90 was when he got back, when it was when those songs went into MBL. And to celebrate, he went and recorded a medley of Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. P.S. Love Me Do. Uh, uh, gosh, I, mi- I missed that. Uh, he did it live on the 89 tour and mostly it came out with those recordings. But I he see. did do a, he did do a studio version of it. Anyway, that's that's not what we're here to talk about this week. No. Although <laughs> the Plastic Ono Band box, six discs, two Blu-rays, over 11 hours worth of material, 159 new mixes is what they say. It's kind of interesting the Bush was on the album but it also includes the three singles that preceded that album. They're at the end of the record, but those three songs, Give Peace a Chance, Cold Turkey, and Instant Karma, had a huge effect on the record Mm -hmm. and really kind of allowed Lennon to explore this thing he was going for, leaving the Beatles behind. That's following on with what they did with the Imagine box, which also included uh, Power to the People and uh, Happy Christmas on it, on the main disc. You know, they put the singles with the album. Good idea. You know, that, I know McCartney did it on his. On his archive. But uh, the album ends with the three singles. And, you know, that's kind of where, where we're going to pick up our story here. Really, the origins of Plastic Ono Band sit with John's pot bust, October the 18th of 1968. Right. And John was to plead guilty since Yoko was not a citizen of the UK. She could have been deported. Yes. And and so he took it all on himself and... And pled guilty. And did. And, you know, and probably uh, if Yoko was responsible, so was John. I mean, it was... If, if, if in fact... They found something as opposed to you know, police bringing it along with them, which is what John said. You know, he, he was insistent that because Jimi Hendrix had stayed in that particular apartment on Montague Street, that, uh, that they had gone through it and cleaned it to the, you know, because yeah, they didn't want... Yeah, Pete Shotton has a story about them being tipped off and uh, John calling him over and having him dispose of the vacuum bags. <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, the fact that they were caught with something may have been, well, if they're going to bust a beetle, they better find something. The detective, uh, Pilcher, has actually written a book. I'm not buying it, but it's out there. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. I read I read the excerpts and and he's all oh I'm you know they forced me to go bust John Lennon it's like really dude uh yeah yeah I, I don't know that I buy that necessarily uh, you know I'm not English and and I the day to day Beatle thing that happened in the British press I wasn't privy to but apparently there was a lot of criticism of john's relationship with yoko we've all read that story and and it's true he wasn't the the thing he was and it wasn't appreciated well i mean yoko was weird and yoko was you know he he had divorced a blonde although she's not naturally blonde (laughs) uh caucasian woman to you know run off with this weird little asian artist right and the media just didn't like that Right. Although, you know, I have uh, looked at Yoko's art uh, from that time and a little later, and I, I wouldn't call it weird. I, I get it totally. And it's, it's meant to be often tongue in cheek and just to make you think in ways that you're not used to thinking. Painting to be stepped on. Leave a piece of canvas or finished painting on the floor or in the street. Lennon talks about going up uh, on a ladder with a spyglass and to see the word yes and how that had an effect on him. But she would do things like have a stage and they'd put a fan on the stage and people are sitting in folding chairs and they turn it on and the instruction was to get out of the way of the wind so that you could visually see this wind go and people pull aside and, you know, the wind go through the room and then curl back around. And so, you know, it's like, well, that's interesting. Grapefruit is actually a really cool read. Paint to see the skies. Drill two holes into canvas. Hang it where you can see the sky. Change the place of hanging. Try both the front and the rear windows. To see if the skies are different. Yes. I think there there is a, a thing that got put upon her that she was just weird. Well, and she also uh, liked to take that image forward. I mean, you know, bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. I mean, you know, she, she was certainly aware of the image and uh, ran with it. Yes, and she also talks about her view of art. You know, it's like if you don't make a noise, what's the point? If you make art and no one ever sees it, what is the point? Now, you could argue with that philosophy, but she stated it. And so that's her philosophy. And she was looking to make a noise. She was also being a little bit disingenuous when she says that uh, she didn't know who the Beatles were and all she knew was that Ringo was Apple in Japanese, you know. Yeah, I agree. So uh, the bus happened and John took the rap. And then uh, in the next year after the uh, first bed in, he decided he wanted to go and do something which would make a noise in the United States. Right. The- Student movement was big. It, you know, it was a year of the Tet Offensive and the 
Kennedy and King assassinations and the, the Soviets going into um, Czechoslovakia and the Democratic Convention. I mean, it was all this uh, turmoil. And he felt like it was incumbent on him to make a statement. Just tell me, any, any sustained peace propaganda or peace, non-violent movements that ever lasted? So John applied for a visa to get into the United States, but the, the government just sort of sat on it. They said, oh, well, we'll, we'll think about it. Right. So John and Yoko got impatient, and they, they first decided they were going to go to the Bahamas uh, and yes. do a bed-in in the Bahamas. And, you know, John had been there before. He, he liked to be comfortable as far as going to a place he knew. And so uh, they had been there recording help, and it was British, and so he was able to go. But apparently it was not... Uh, Yoko didn't like the hotel, and it was too hot, is what they say. Right, right. They were able to call around, and Canada said, okay, you can come for a couple of weeks. Right. We have to make a decision on your visa, but uh, while we're waiting, you can come to the country. There were lots of emerging radio stations. I mean, FM was just coming in, and and the whole Pacifica radio network were kind of run by hippies. As part of our series, This I Believe, educators can go to our website, npr.org, for guidelines on how to use the essays as a teaching tool. Today's essay comes from one of those classrooms at the Fieldston School in New York City. Macklin Levine wrote her essay for her English class last year in sixth grade. I believe in the Beatles. Although they don't exist anymore, their music is very much alive, even to a 12-year-old like me. As old as the songs are, you can learn a lot about yourself from the lyrics. Listening to them with others and singing along has been important to me and to my family. The Beatles don't exist anymore, but their music will live in everyone forever. I believe in the Beatles because their music brings people together and gives us hope. With absolutely no planning, he basically told Derek Taylor, well, you know, go and find us a hotel that'll let us do this. And Derek not only managed to get them booked into the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hotel, he managed to mobilize the Canadian media to get people to this bedroom. You know, for, for Bed in Mark II. Right, exactly. Which is really an amazing thing if you think about it. It's the power of, of a beetle. Right. And the people who came to be a part of that, you know, I, I'm not real sure how that collection was uh, put together. The, the Hare Krishnas that came to stay in the hotel room. Some of them were, were by the invitation of John. Uh, a lot of them were through Ronnie Hawkins, who r really served as sort of the liaison between John and uh, both the Canadian government and the Canadian radio stations. Uh, I, I didn't realize that his relationship with Ronnie Hawkins went to then. I thought it was pretty much around the... Yeah, it started then, and, and then okay, it cool. would extend into his, his two further trips to Canada over that year. Right. How did Tommy Smothers get there? And more importantly, how did uh, Al Cap get there? Playboy magazine said, can you guys go and write us a story? They paid to get them a plane flight to Montreal. That That's kind of interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was meant to be a, a press junket and and Al Cap game. And if people want to think of us as freaks, we'll be freaks for them. And if they want to think of us as musicians, we'll be musicians for them. And if it's like your lyrics, or what do they mean? Anything you like, you know. And we'll be any, we'll be Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, or Jesus and Mary, or anything anybody wants to be. If we can get the message over, we'll play the part. And we don't have to play the part. We'll be ourselves, and people project these. Uh, they must be freaks. Uh, mm. They must be hippies. They must be squares. You know, whatever people want us to be, we'll yeah, be there. Say that we use that situation. You know, instead of arguing with them. For instance, they said, "Okay." Uh, how ugly can you get? You know, you're the ugliest couple in the world or something, you know, those comments. And first we were hurt, we said, well, ugly, we're not that ugly, are we, or something. But we thought, okay, let's use that. You know, we're an ugly couple, we're Abbott and Costello or something, you know, of the world. And make them laugh, you know. Any situation, you can use it for your own benefit. And so we're trying to say, if somebody comes and say, you composers, you know, say, okay, we're composers, you know. What can we do for you? <laughs> uh, by the way, peace, you know, sneak in that word, etc. I'm used to, you know. As you mentioned, you know, people could get them on the telephone and, you know, they mm. were talking to people, the, pe the famous People's Park thing in Berkeley. Right. But what really came out and what is relevant to what we're talking about today is the recording of Give Peace a Chance. You know, I've seen pictures of that and... Uh, I guess someone got sent out for a a load of uh, whiteboard because <laughs> it's it's all over the walls. It's, yeah, John's assistant. Yeah, so uh, her, you know, or the the original the original copy of the lyrics that John wrote uh, for her that she then put up full sized on the whiteboard sold a couple of years ago. Ah, uh, well, good for her. Yeah, if you want to make money, you know she had, she kept those lyrics. <laughs> she hadn't kept those lyrics with the intention of selling them, but it's like, oh, I still have these, right? And and I'm locked in during a pandemic. I think I'll sell it. That was what happened. It's uh, kind of an amazing story, right? Everybody's talking about Johnny they bought in a recording deck and the engineer was like uh this isn't gonna work real well but he still managed a way to make it work he did. He did in the he bedroom. Did. So, right. It, it was a a slapdash production for sure. There uh, uh, are early takes. I mean, he wrote the song there. There are early takes where he's really looking for a lyric. Things aren't coming together as far as the rhythm of his lines, and, and uh, it takes a while to get there. And he wants to keep including masturbation in the in the lyrics. Right. You listen but, to the demos. It's like, you but know. That's, a, that's an interesting point. The, the, you know, this box set does not have the word masturbation in it, as I understand. That is track number 12 on the disc. And it sounds completely different than it's ever sounded, I think. As far as the 
just as far as the listening experience. Right. There's a separation to things that, that's different. You can hear individual vocals, and right. you can hear you can hear the beating on those uh, rubber trash cans trying to get the beat stable. You know that had always just sounded like a you know a muffled sort of bum bum, almost like a heartbeat. Here on this version, it sounds like someone beating on rubber trash cans. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, <laughs> it still works. Right. As a musician, you can you can talk about. Uh, having a crowd and getting them on the, uh, having them get on the on beat instead of the back beat. Well, I don't, I don't want to say something incorrect, but that was an overdub, wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't in England. It was actually in Canada. Uh, they did get some professional Canadian musicians, opera singers and things that actually came in and did some of the other backing vocals. Right. You know, sort of, beefing it up and, and helping sort of helping everything congeal. Andre Perry tells us how he came to record Give Peace a Chance. I had produced two of the most famous recording in French Canada. I recorded it with a four-track machine the size of half of a, of a refrigerator, you know, and very heavy. And when we arrived there, I saw right away that it was almost impossible to do a proper recording it was so much noise. People were banging on all kinds of stuff. They were banging on doors, on ashtrays. There was all the hippies at one side. You know, the Krishnas were there, the Ari Krishnas with their bells. There were people that were banging off beat. I mean, it was a chaos. Yeah, and there was like Tommy Smothers and Tim Leary and Dick Gregg and old people sort of clapping along and singing on the chorus. And if you hear the record, it's funny actually because my rhythm sense has always been a bit wild. <laughs> and halfway through it, I got on the onbeat instead of the backbeat, and it was hard because all that was non-musicians playing along with us. And then I played it back. Of course, it was terrible. And being a drummer, I said, okay, I'm going to give it that beatlish kind of thump. So I went and I picked up my garbage can, which was made of, of rubber, and the kind of thump, thump that you hear throughout the recording comes from that. He listened to it, and he flipped, and he says, it's absolutely incredible. Right. Well, I know he, he was trying to correct the clapping. The clapping wasn't exactly what he had heard, and so he had overdubs done to enforce the beat. But apparently in the last of the interview I read was he wasn't really quite happy with that either, that it didn't sound the way he thought it was supposed to sound. Well, I don't think it, it, it ever would have. It, there's just no way they could have gotten a crowd like that to to do it the way he heard it in his head. Right. He would need George Martin. <laughs> but it, it still manages to work. And it works, to my opinion, because of the chorus. I mean, you know, the verses, they could be anything. Right. Well, you know, I, I sent you a, a link to the Vietnam Moratorium, which was later on that year. And Pete Seeger is leading the crowd in Give Peace a Chance. And it's just basically the chorus with things thrown in, as John would have. But no one ever tries to sing the lyric, the verse lyric. Uh, it's all, you know, are you listening, President Nixon, or <laughs> that kind of thing. As I was walking from Arlington to the Capitol yesterday, 
with the name of a dead man on my chest, there was one little phrase which I kept thinking over and over and over to myself. And maybe you'd like to sing it once or twice with me and Brother Kirkpatrick because it's something we're going to have to say to 200 million American people when we get home. And all it is is this. All we are saying Sing it. is give me the chance. Let me hear it. The verse lyrics are just basically uh, good noise. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not a great song, but it's a, a good representation of both what being in the bed in was like and then, you know, sort of the whole times. Right. There's some lines in it that I just love. The whole thing about uh, ism, ism, ism. I love that. And that's the perfect way to, to end that verse because he's been using that. Bagism, ragism, ismism. Yep. Bagism is a is a whole different thing, and, and we'll get into that somewhere along the way in some other show. Maybe, maybe a plastic owner show, but maybe not. <laughs> right. Well, then he also, there's another line at the end. He's going through the names, and then Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare Krishna. And it just, it's like it's perfect. Because the, that all the verses are just playing with rhythm. They don't really mean anything, per se. Yeah, it's almost like a free-form rap. Okay, I'll go with that. There, there are similarities. I'm not saying that rap is in any way influenced by Give Peace a Chance, but it's the same sort of idea. Right. So, okay, then John returned to England. The Beatles finished up Abbey Road. And the next thing was, once again in Canada... John has cold turkey. The first time it was performed anywhere was live in Toronto at the Rock and Roll Revival on September the 13th. Right. The song was around because he actually proposed it to the Beatles uh, as the next single. And it was rejected, basically. You know, nobody was really wanting to do that. And so, you know, that, that song was hot on Lennon's list. He as I said, went to Toronto and, and did it, and then came back and refined it to record it. On October 24th, Apple releases a single by the Plastic Ono Band. The A-side, with John's screaming vocal, Ringo's drums, Klaus Vormann's bass, and Eric Clapton's driving guitar, became for many the best post-Beatle record. It's a plaintive wail against the horrors of heroin addiction, or any addiction that affects human life. Even though it was anti-drug, the record was banned in a lot of places. I offered cold turkey to Beatles, but they weren't ready to record a single. So I did it as plastic only. You know? mm. I don't care what it goes out as, as long as it goes out. So we get cold turkey uh, as track number 13. That is, it's intense. The guitars are much cleaner than we've ever heard them. Cleaner in a good way, although they're, they're very sort of grungy and dirty guitars. Right. The original single for me was just like this wall of guitars, whereas this mix allows you to hear things. 
there's breath in the recording. His guitar playing is great. And then towards the end where you have a variety of overdubs, they hold their place. They don't become a wash. Yeah, John would refer to himself as the invisible guitarist in the way that George was the invisible singer. And you really get that feel from here. Right. You know, he, he's not out there out front, but he is an essential part of the guitar mix. Right. And, you know, that's the song that McCartney was doing when he wrote Let Me Roll It. Nice thing about Let Me, Let Me Roll It for me is having a sort of distinctive guitar riff. Um, we used to do a lot of riffs in the Beatles, and it's not easy to keep coming up with them. Mm. But that... And then there's nothing for it. And it's, it's kind of very theatrical, quite dramatic, and it's great to play because you sort of wind the amp up and stand. Anyway, so it's kind of the theatrical thing of that that I like. And then the song, uh, it's a kind of slightly dramatic quality where I used an echo that's, that John used to use a lot. So people thought the vocal sound was a bit like John Lennon. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the echo. Well, some of that, and then of course, uh, John also had a fairly similar sounding riff in his song, Beef Jerky. Do we know the recording sequence? Let's see. Um, Band on the Run was released in December of 73, and Walls and Bridges was recorded in the summer of 74. Now, getting back to Cold Turkey, the single was released in both the U.S. and U.K. at the end of October, and you know that was really to the public the first significant cracks in the Beatles. It's one member of the group releasing a pop record. That hadn't happened before. Right, and then there was the publicity stunt of returning his MBE and using the reasoning that Cold Turkey was slipping down the charts as being one of the reasons he returned the the MBE. And that was always weird to me personally because I hadn't heard the record yet when I read that. You know, I would clean the paper. (laughs) Anything about the Beatles? Um, And so the fact that it was already slipping down the charts and I hadn't even heard it yet was kind of startling to me because at that point I was eating up anything that the group was putting out. And then John went off to Denmark at the beginning of 1970. He, he went off to visit with Kyoko and uh, Yoko's ex-husband, her baby daddy, as we would uh, call him today, uh, Tony Cox. And Tony's uh, current wife, Melinda, uh, brought up the concept of uh, karma while they were sitting around uh, trying to figure things out. While the other three Beatles were off completing I Me Mine, John was writing Instant Karma. Right. In some ways, I think he saw that as being his first solo record. And John all of a sudden said, he said, we need more voices on this. And uh, we said, well, we can all sing, and we, but we know we don't have enough tracks to double track, kind of, we all shine on, like the stars and the sun. So he wanted, like, a huge thing, and it was getting late, and it was that time of night. So he sent Mel Evans to... Uh, who was the Beatles' main roadie, Mel Evans. Um, really great guy, like a cuddly teddy bear. He went off, he said, I've got an idea, and he went to, I think it was the Revolution Club in London, 
and the club was uh, kind of starting to close by the time he got thing down there. And he rounded, rounded all these people up from the club and he invited them all back to the studio. And they were all pretty, I think, half cut by the time they left. So they all, all these people started traipsing through the door and I'm looking at them going, this is not going to be easy to get them all singing in time and in tune because, you know, they'd been drinking all night. Anyhow, John and myself and uh, Klaus, we all stood at the front conducting like this and and gave him a big sign saying, this is what you have to sing. And we managed to actually get them all singing in tune. So, so that's what you actually listen to on the record. So it was a pretty interesting evening. <laughs> and then also around that same time, when, when John returned home, uh, he was greeted with a copy of uh, The Primal Scream by Arthur Janoff. Right, an interesting man. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk a little bit more about him as as we continue, uh, because we're we're just about to hit the the center of the album. But uh, yeah, I was going to say we're just about to hit the two hour mark. <laughs> the publishers say that they were the ones who sent John a copy. John claims that his copy came unmarked in a package, and and he opened it up just to see what it was. First off, why would a publisher necessarily send a preprint of this thing to John Lennon? Right. You know, would that go through the business office or it's it's very odd. Yeah. But we do know that a copy arrived at Tittenhurst. And it certainly got his attention. He read through it and he then went and called up Janov and said, why don't you come over and and we'll and we'll talk about this and and we'll see what we think about starting your therapy. Right. I get from what I read that it was uh, probably more intense than that. I think he was having some major problems. They both were probably. Well, he was um, coming down off the heroin. I mean, cold turkey was not right. the end of his uh, dabbling with well, drugs in general, but heroin in particular. Yeah. I, I just recently got a book, uh, Riding So High, having to do with the impact that drugs had on on them as musicians and people. Great book. Joe Gooden. Um, but I don't know when they quit exactly. I mean, did, did John is John saying he quit before Cold Turkey? Well, John, uh, John has claimed that he quit around cold turkey but then you know like i say there's there's pretty much documentation that he continued through the fall at least he was kind of looking for something new right but he was still if not in the middle of it you know he's about where we are with covid right now it's like okay you can see the finish line but i'm not there yet as far as heroin goes <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've never read anything regarding heroin use by the time he was involved with Janov. Yeah, I, I don't know if they overlapped or not. At the end of January, John put Instant Karma down. And as you say, that was probably his first solo single, at least to his, his mind, his first solo single. Yes. You know, he quit the Beatles. And so here's this, this song. Technically, you could say Cold Turkey was after the Beatles split, but but it was still around. That whole thing is a little bit weird. You know, 
yes, it's Toronto, which made him decide that he, quote, wanted the divorce, but John was ambivalent about it throughout the whole year, I think. Yeah. So in, in March of 1970, uh, uh, John had invited uh, Arthur and his wife, so the Janovs came, and John and Yoko began primal therapy at Tittenhurst. Isn't there uh, some instance of them being in two different hotels? Yeah, it, it was. seemed like I read that, that Janov wanted them separate for a, a period of time. The timeline isn't completely clear, but I did find the following quote. Before treatment could begin, Janov insisted that John and Yoko separate for 24 hours. For the first time in over two years, John and Yoko were physically cut off from one another. Yoko stayed in the master bedroom while John moved into his new recording studio. Quote, We did a lot of it in the recording studio while they were building it, recalled Janov. That was kind of difficult, but it went very, very well. John had about as much pain as I've ever seen in my life, and he was a very dedicated patient, very serious about it. When I said to him, you've got to come to L.A. now, I can't spend the rest of my life in England, he said, fine, and he came. However, before they decamped to California, John and Yoko were moved into separate hotels in London for further treatment. So this was maybe maybe a month into their therapy. Right. And this time, John and Yoko were able to get a travel visa. I don't know whether it was because our immigration was lax uh, or no one had decided yet what his status was, being a very famous man. Um, or it could have been that he was um, brought by a medical visa. It could have been. Uh, he, only, he only stayed six months. Yes. Uh, was it even six months? Yeah, March to September. The Guardian came up with some FBI papers from about this time, which uh, claimed that basically Lenin was too much of a junkie to be a political concern. So that may play into this as well. Right. How many files can we dig in to find out what the official stance on John Lennon was? We need to ask Professor Wiener about that. You know, he, <laughs> Right. He, he, he spent his whole career on investigating well, either, either him or um, John's uh, immigration lawyer. Right. But he was allowed to come, and we had a variety of altering experiences here. I don't think any anything else would work on me so well. But then, of course, I don't. I'm not through with it. You know, it's a it's a process that's going on. We primal almost daily. So they they continued therapy at Janos Institute, and they were living uh, in a rented home in Bel Air on Nimes Road. Coincidental, since it's its favorite number. Nimes Road or Nimes Road, depending on how you want to say it. Nimes, not nine. N-I-M-E-S. Oh. Close enough. Yeah, I'm sure John would have got it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I mean, John, John kept claiming that he was born in the ninth month. It's like, no, John, October is the tenth month. Right. He's allowed. He's a beetle, you know. He can change anything he wants to change. He can change time. <laughs> so the day-to-day seemed to be they would sort of wake up, have some breakfast, watch some TV, go down, do their therapy, and then... In the afternoon, they would hang out at the pool, and John would write for kind of this six-month period. Right. Again, you look through the book. Uh, they were actually using cassettes at this point, which <laughs> the ugliest or nastiest-looking 
cassette tapes you could ever imagine. <laughs> right. But I guess that's what was available in 1970. Yes, cutting edge. But I wouldn't touch one of those to record a school play on, much less. <laughs> but they held up, you know, because we get some of those recordings uh, later on in this set. It's amazing how much signal they actually managed to capture on those cassette tapes. Right. I've had experience with taking things from cassettes and putting it through the whole process of mastering. And you are surprised how good the signal was. And it's lo-fi, but still it's, you could recognize it as uh, good music. Enough to be able to certainly recover the tune if that's what you want to be doing. But, right. but even more than that, I mean, you know, it's actually even listenable. Once you get rid of that layer of hiss, which is inherent in the format. <laughs> right. So that was where he wrote and recorded demos for uh, most of the album. The, we, we start with uh, Mother. I really like this mix. I mean, it's a, it's a tough song, but I really like this mix. The piano in particular, at the start of the song, you're sort of at the back of the soundstage, and then by the time John's screaming, it's almost like the microphone is inside of the piano. I hate to jump out of the chronological order, but also included in this set is an acapella version of that vocal, and that took my breath away because it is so perfect and so starts off, you know, it's not a different vocal. It's the vocal that's on the record. Yeah, and it's and, just you know, isolated. He starts off at this level, and by the end, you almost are crying with him. I mean, it, it, it's more, even more intimate without the piano. Now, the story of Mother, one thing that I've always wondered about, Mark Lewison has told us that the, the Blackpool thing isn't what we've always thought it was you know john at age six when your father came home after the war he wanted to try and save the marriage but she'd have none of it she told him to get lost but alf wasn't giving up that easily was he julia hmm? oh feel free to join the conversation no i didn't think she would You were staying here with me at Mendips when Alf turned up out of the blue. He said he wanted to take you into Liverpool for the day. I thought he was genuine, but he took you to Blackpool instead. He kidnapped you. Turned out he'd organised a passage to New Zealand. Got himself a job out there. Wanted to take you with him. Well, we hadn't a clue where you were. I was distraught. Luckily, the Siemens mission had an address for a relative in Blackpool. So we went to find you, to bring you back. Alf wouldn't let me in the house. Said it was between him and your mother. He pleaded with her to give the marriage another chance, to keep the family together. But again, it was of no use. But what to do with you? So in all their great wisdom... Who do you want to be with, John? Do you want to be with me? Or do you want to be with your mum? They decided to ask you, a five-year-old boy, who you wanted to spend the rest of your life with, and you said... But Daddy... Daddy...
So knowing that Alf was planning to take you to New Zealand and knowing she would probably never see you again, your mother walked out. And that is when I stole you. And if that's stealing, I'm a thief. I had no choice. Right. But he's telling exactly that story in this song. You know, mom, mama don't go, daddy come home. Children don't do... You know. Right, but, but it, it, it doesn't have to be that story necessarily. It, it's, it's, you know... The fact that his mother went away, you know, the fact that his father went away, daddy come home. Oh, there's certainly more universal meaning to that. It's just, I find it interesting that the story, which is only half true, you know, and maybe it's taken such ground among Beatle people because John is telling exactly that story here. You know, he's not telling right. just that story. There's, there's lots more to what he's talking about, but... At one level, the lyrics he's talking about, the push and pull, which supposedly happened at Blackpool. Yeah, you know. Everything is significantly improved audio-wise. Even those church bells, you know, which are slowed down, but they had always been a little bit... You never really been able to hear the resonance of the bells. Now they actually sort of sound like church bells actually sound. Yes, the the difference to me is that the bells had always sounded like that they were part of a different recording. You know, you, you have these church bells and you stuck it at the beginning of your song. Whereas this, the, the bells are more present and sound more like real bells going into the song. I mean, both of them are real bells. It's just, it's almost like there's a, a veil between you and those first uh, first bells. Yeah, all the previous versions we've had of this. Uh, it's almost like the stuff which came off of the Mellotron, uh, you know, in, in all previous versions of the White Album, that had always kind of been a little bit distant from what the Beatles were playing. In the Giles Martin remix from a couple of years ago, it actually sounds of a piece with the rest of the recordings. Right. Well, you know, as I said, 50 years of, innovations and improvement is going to give you a, a difference uh, the different abilities so it, it sounds you know we also as listeners are much more sophisticated and so the newer recordings tend to appeal to that our sophistication well that and the fact that you're actually uh, mixing for surround sound rather than you know Quad was only ever kind of a deal. I mean, right. you know, they never really knew how to mix for quad, but between Atmos and the, and just the point old 5.1 mixes, they are mixing for that purpose. Right. And, and so you get a, someone like Giles Martin or uh, Sam O'Kell sitting there behind the mixing board knows what's right for what point in the stereo image, you know, much less the 5.1 image. Right. So, you know, that's something that they thought about, which not only have they thought about it, they then said, well, okay, how can we be true to the original recordings by, but still open this up? So we close this week 
one song into the proper Plastic Ono Band album. We will pick up next week with song two of John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band. Talk to you then. Before we forget, for those of you in the U.S. and Canada, happy Mother's Day, everybody. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. talk a little bit about what primal therapy is. It's uh, gone into many incarnations over the years, but basically it means that we have needs that we're all born with and that when those basic needs are not met, we hurt. And when that hurt is big enough, it's imprinted in the system. It changes our whole physiologic system. And then what our therapy does is go back to those early brains, the hurt brain, and relive the, the pain and get it out of the system because meanwhile the pain is being held in storage and just waiting for its exit so to speak. So primal therapy was a way of accessing our feeling brain and down below even the feeling brain into the brainstem to get to all the hurts that started very early in our lives and bring them up to, the, to consciousness for connection and integration. And it's a very systematic therapy. It's uh, paced by the patient. The patient decides when he comes and when he leaves and how long he stays, there's no 50-minute hour anymore. And it's just the feelings of the patient determine when he stops. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.